Welcome back to On The Tape, folks. I'm Guy Adami. Today I'm here with Danny Moses. Dan Nathan is off this week, but he'll be back next week. Today we're going to be talking about inflation, because guess what, folks? It's here. GameStop, they reported earnings this week. The SEC finally waking up. They're cracking down on a number of different things. And a reallocation from the EVs into traditional automakers later. We'll be going off the tape in an interview with Isaac Boltanski and Brady Cobb. But first, let me riff a little bit here, Danny Moses, if I may. You know, the Fed, I mean, it's amazing. It seems like Jerome Powell speaks every single day of the week. I think the market's gotten used to his dribble. Yes, I use the word dribble. But inflation is here, folks. If you're living in the real world, it's here in spades. And the fact that they don't measure it to me is just, it makes me crazy. Are you familiar with the author Cervantes, Danny Moses? Cervantes. Yes, yes, I am. Where are you going to pull from that? I believe he wrote Don Quixote. And if you recall, one of the many things about Don Quixote, other than that Sancho Panza was his sort of right-hand man, he was fighting windmills because he thought the windmills were giants. And I think what we're trying to fight now with the Fed, they're trying to fight windmills. They don't exist. That giant doesn't exist. They're looking at this entirely the wrong way. You know what? We have inflation in all the wrong places, the place they want it in terms of wages It ain't here. And guess what? It's not coming here. You know why, Danny Moses? Because technology is the most deflationary force in the history of mankind. And we're living at the most technological lit period in the history of mankind. So on one side, you have these deflationary forces. The other side, these inflationary forces. And the Fed's caught in the middle of the windmills. And by definition, they're not going to be able to win. Yeah. So dribble's a good word since it is the NCAA tournament. Aha, I like what you did there. I took all these Big Ten teams that did not work out well. Pac-10 seems to be much better. That's a whole nother issue, whole nother episode. So Yellen and Powell both are forced to testify quarterly because of the CARES Act, just you know, in front of Congress because they're mm-hmm. controlling so much money. They said more of the same from last week, basically echoing Powell's sentiment from the Fed meeting last week where he says, we'll do anything. We'll let inflation run hot if we have to. We're not going to stop QE. We're not going to do any of that. And the market kind of was expecting that. I think that was a non-event. What is an event, to your point, not just about inflation in in bad places, but you're now seeing how sensitive the supply chain is around the world. And we've talked about this before. The supply chain is somewhat broken because consumers' demand for goods is outstripping supply. And just what happened with the Suez Canal here in the last couple of days we're that sensitive to the supply chain where a boat gets stuck in the Suez Canal. Granted, it's a big one and it blocked everything. It has a ripple effect throughout the economy. And there's shortages of car parts. There's shortages of construction materials. But what's other thing is really interesting is that from a hiring perspective and the minimum wage issue, which we know is inflationary, true inflation is measured, I think, in wage inflation. And when the stimulus bill did not have the $15 minimum wage in it, Some state and local governments already have taken it into their own hands of paying their employees $15 an hour. You've seen some large retailers start to pay $15 an hour. So from a competitive perspective in the employment world, people are going to have to start paying their employees more if they want to fill some of these open spots. And there are a lot of open spots that are needed. Why? Because we're trying to fill the void and manufacture more, fix this supply chain. And as the service economy comes back post-COVID, that's an issue. So I think the Fed is ignoring that. Yeah, they're clearly ignoring it. And what they're going to tell you is, because we've heard a hundred times, if not more, the word transitory. And by definition, the situation with the Suez Canal is going to be transitory. But you know what? You have to ask the question, how did a boat, how did this ship, 
get sideways in the Suez Canal. And they're talking about wind. I got to tell you something, Danny. There's more to this story than meets the eye. And I don't have some tinfoil in my head. And I'm not some crazy conspiracy theorist. Although I will tell you, Man on the Moon by R.E.M. is a great song. I encourage you to listen to the lyrics. But with that said, I really do think there's more to this. And and maybe it comes down to some sort of you know, hacking of a system or something. And maybe we'll learn more about this. And maybe the market is not as scared about this as it should be. I know that's seemingly out of left field, but I'm telling you right now, next week, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this story and a lot different versions of what really happened. No, it should be interesting. I like this conspiracy theory. I know. By you the way, figured you would. I was born the day the man landed on the moon, by the way. Were you really? Well, yeah. good for, well bully for you, as they say. You know, yeah. one giant yeah. step for man, <laughs> Yeah, whatever it is. But I mean, listen, I do think inflation is here. You know, the Fed's going to talk it down because they have to, because in their mind, or at least in my mind, the market's the ultimate goal. Keeping the market at levels or keeping the market uh, floating around these levels is of the utmost importance because so much of our economy is built on consumer sentiment. And Danny, you won't want to push back on this one, but I'm of the firm belief that all consumer sentiment in this country is an overlay of the S&P 500. And I'm not suggesting that everybody owns stocks. I understand that. What I am suggesting, though, is when people see the stock market go up every single day, whether or not they own a stock, in their mind, they say, well, the stock market's higher, must mean the economy's doing well. If the economy's doing well, means I can able to go buy that Starbucks coffee or buy that car or go on that trip. I think that's how it works. Just go back and look over the last few years when we've seen significant sell-offs in the market of any prolonged period of time. I go back to October 2018 to December of that year when the stock market went down 19.9% in a straight line. Consumer spending stopped on a dime. And that's, to me, their battle that they're fighting to keep the market up because it keeps consumer sentiment high, consumer sentiment high, people spend, and that's how this economy works. That started with Bernanke, the obsession with the stock market as the feedback loop for economic and government policy. That's how you take the temperature. Well, you take the temperature, it doesn't mean that you're completely healthy just because you don't have a fever. But I will tell you, it's always been about bailing out the stock market. Even if you go back to look, the first COVID bailout was really buying high-yield bonds. That was like the first thing the government did was give money to BlackRock to go buy stuff on the ETFs. And a lot of the ETFs went into high-yield. I can go on and on about why that. I think that's ridiculous. The one thing that bothers me the most right now is why are we still doing $120 billion a month in quantitative easing? Is it that sensitive? If the market is that fragile, if the market is that fragile, where if you just took away that drug, even a little bit of it, or just announced you're going to taper it, what are you scared of? Yeah. So- Ask yourself a question. Should we be at this multiple on the S&P if it's that sensitive? Of course not. No, of course not. And I don't mean to jump on you, but it gets me crazy that nobody asks the question. I mean, the question is, listen, if things are so great, why why are you spending $120 billion a month? It makes zero sense to me. If that's what this market is predicated on, you talk about capitalism all you want. That's not capitalism, folks. Not the books that I read. And granted, that was a long time ago. But you can't continue to privatized gains and socialized losses, you don't have a system. And the fact that the Fed is the backstop and we need to do this, otherwise something bad might happen. What do they see that the rest of us don't see? That's the question. And nobody wants to ask it. 
So, Guy, on that, yeah, the $120 billion, the, the $80 billion in treasuries, the $40 billion in mortgage-backed securities that's going on and on, the fact we can't even wean off that is a little bit scary. I mean, the Fed finally did something, right, by changing the SLR requirements for banks. That was the first time the banks had anything negative happen to them, the fact that they have to keep a higher reserve against some of their assets. That's basically what that meant. They're not going to let that go and keep that. So that was the only thing I've, that I've seen done. So it is really interesting. And I want to talk about something else going down in Washington. There's another organization down there getting some teeth, and that's the SEC. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the SEC we've seen over the last couple of weeks raise their head a little bit above the sand. Specifically, in this case, what we've seen recently is kind of that happened actually this morning is going after SPACs. And when I say going after SPACs, it's nothing major. They're asking banks about their procedures, about how they qualify these SPACs, about how, how they raise money. What are their disclosures, et cetera? Because this is all coming from the fact that there's been a few blowups here, namely brought to light by a group called Hindenburg Research. Nate Anderson from Hindenburg Research has brought to light several names. It started back with Nikola in the fall, then went to Clover Health about a month ago, and then now with Lordstown Motors, which is another EV company. And it all has to do with did these companies disclose either DOJ investigations, SEC investigations, things like that. And now the SEC is admitting and they're saying, you know what, we need to get a little bit more in front of this. And so they are now requesting information. Just a reminder out there, you know, we've talked about this before. SPACs can be a great vehicle, but they're allowed to give forecasts and normal IPO candidates can't. And with some of these forecasts or lack of disclosures, these deals get done rather quickly. The ICC is starting to realize now that retail investors might start to lose a little, a little bit of money. They need to get a little bit ahead of this. But Guy, you know who I blame? For all of this. Wait, I'm sure I have a guess, but I can't wait to hear. This is going to be great. Alex Rodriguez. Of course you do. Of course you do. Because you uh, you don't like A-Rod from, from Jump Street, and you get looking for any opportunity to jump on him. But go ahead. Let me hear about the A-Rod saga. Give it to me. Well, his SPAC, Slam, right, which raised $500 million in February, that came out February 22nd. On March 10th, the SEC sent out a bulletin. Literally, it says... Be wary of SPACs with celebrity endorsements. Yeah, that's exactly right. And listen, they should. About time, by the way. And I'm shocked that last past week, that didn't have a bigger impact on a lot of these names. I mean, the market, like the market does everything, the market shrugged it off. But good for the SEC for finally coming in. I wouldn't say they're cracking down, but you have to start somewhere. I mean, the other part of the SEC that I think is even more fascinating, and you talked about this a couple weeks ago, is SoftBank and the investigation they're under right now, Danny. Yeah, so they have an active U.S. unit called SB Northstar. And if you guys remember, we weren't on air back then, but back in September, there was these massive call options going on, a massive buyer out there of tech stocks. And people weren't sure where it was coming from. It turns out that it was coming from SoftBank. And there was a Freedom of Information Act request called FOIA that was made by a guy named Aaron Greenspan, who's on Twitter, on Plainsight is his handle, and he admittedly lost money being short some of these tech names and wanted to know who in the world was buying this stuff. And he admitted that. So he sent a request down to Washington in December of last year and finally got something back yesterday, which said the SEC actually has an active and ongoing investigation into SoftBank. And we assume it's related to this September call buying. I mean, they spent, I think, $3.4 billion in options on top of $17 billion worth of shares in massive tech companies what the reason they were doing it. Maybe they wanted to improve the sentiment 
and the U.S. names because they wanted to monetize. I'm just speculating so, on that. So let me, let me stop you there for a second because I think it's really interesting. Let's just round off. And let's say they decided to invest $20 billion in tech names, right? And they instead of $20 billion in the straight equities, they said, you know, we're going to do $17 billion in the equities and we're going to overlay it with $3 billion worth of bets in the options. Is there anything, and I think the answer is probably no, I think you would agree. Is there anything inherently wrong with buying underlying stock and then levering it up by buying options on the back end? No, except the options they were using, it's obvious to me, was manipulation. You don't buy $3.4 billion worth of options. If, if you remember, Guy, these options were so far I out do. of the money. I do, I were, do. They were double certain stock prices. They were creating new, actually, strikes for this purpose. So the option dealers are like, really, someone wants to buy Tesla 1,500 calls, the stock's is 600? Like, what's going on here? Like, mm-hmm. it, was, it was many stocks like that. So- the answer is you do that for one reason, you know, to splash the tape, so to speak, mm-hmm. manipulation back in the day when they thought people were trying to manipulate the markets, you know, we called it layering and spoofing. It's the equivalent to that, basically. I'd, yes, I'd agree. And by the way, and, you know, we had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago with Rebecca Jarvis. You were highlighted in her documentary Game Stopped, and we had Game Stop earnings this week that you want to talk about. But I mentioned that because we saw similar options activity in GameStop. Now, I'll say this as well. Maybe people have figured out that, hey, you know what? We can take advantage of those short gamma books. And I don't want to really go down this rabbit hole of options, but negative gamma is a bitch, folks. And I think there are market participants out there that have figured out we can really take advantage of this negative gamma and we can create things. And I think in a lot of ways, and I've said it on Fast Money, I've said it on this podcast, I've written about it. The people at Wall Street Bets and Reddit, they understand more about convexity and negative gamma than people that are supposedly paid to do it. And I think they just took advantage of it with GameStop. And maybe to a certain extent, that's what SoftBank was trying to do as well. Yeah, I mean, there's institutional option trading and there's retail option trading. The majority of the retail option trading is still going into the market makers. And so that's, those are wider spreads. It's obviously you're paying a lot to participate in that market. On the institutional side, where the majority of these SoftBank calls had to have been traded, we've talked about this before, the dealers, the brokers themselves don't have the balance sheet they used to in the past to take that inherent risk to your point, and they have to offlay that risk somewhere, and that creates a add-on effect uh, to all of this. And to your point, we'll call on, again, to go in the weeds here, delta hedging, you know, as it's known, as the stock goes up, has to keep occurring. And you're right, someone probably figured out something in the system, but either way, it's hard to explain that away. And if that was your capital being used for those options, you would be pretty upset. No, fair enough. And I think it's a great conversation. And I'm curious to see how it shakes itself out because, you know, we're talking about some gray area that I think now, obviously, institutions and to a certain extent, individuals are trying to take advantage of. We mentioned GameStop. Their earnings came out again. Rebecca's documentary was great. You were great in it. What'd you glean, if anything, from the GameStop earnings, we had some wild price fluctuations this past week. Yeah, I was just trying to look at it right now. I think it's like an 11 billion market cap here. But and don't quote me on these prices, but I think we were in like the 180 level when we went to close on the earnings, came out after the bell, went over 200, came back, ended up down at 120 the following day. I mean, this is not a small company, right? No. We're, we're talking about 11 billion dollars. So this thing is winging three and four billion dollar valuations on a company that the stock was trading at 10, 15 bucks not too long ago. And if you go back and look, so on the quarter itself, you know, I know no one's listening to this to go over quarterly, you know, analysis, but just bring some logic to it. First of all, the 10K came out. And I know I say this all the time to people, but go read it. Honestly, 
you got nothing better to do, go read those hundreds of pages of disclosures. And what's really funny in their disclosures that came out, the 10K is an annual report, as you know, the 10Qs are quarterly. So this was their annual year. It's a January fiscal year because their big season is the holiday season, right? So this is their biggest quarter. This is when they do the most revenues that they do for the year. But when you look at it in the risk section, it says short selling can add to volatility in our stock, short coverings, short squeezes they used Mm -hmm. in their actual 10K, which was really interesting. These guys, from this standpoint, they announced a $100 million ATM that had not been used yet. Now they filed, that, that's an at-the-market offering. It's basically a, you know, a stock offering mm-hmm. that they can raise capital. They hadn't done it as of yet, which is crazy to me. Where there's a legal reason they haven't done it yet with where their stock is, it makes no sense why you wouldn't raise capital up at this valuation. And then on the call, when they didn't take any questions, it was just a short call, people were upset. Legal reason probably because they are in the middle of either upsizing that offering or whatever. But guys, this is not, when I say guys and girls, anyone listening out there, you cannot tell me this company is worth $11 billion. Their yearly sales, 2018, $8.2 billion. 2019, $6.5 billion. 2020, $5 billion. They are shutting down stores. They're getting rid of these leases, which are good, but they have massive obligations there. They're moving more to hardware from software because all the console makers download games directly. You don't need mm-hmm. to go to a GameStop. Someone called it the Blockbuster. And just, I want to shake people and just to look at this company. Is it great that Ryan Cohen is, is getting involved? Sure. But I think back to... J.C. Penney in 2011, they had a genius from Apple, the guy that built all the Apple stores. Ron Johnson came in and was going to save J.C. Penney. They hire him. The stock goes from 25 to 40. Years later, he leaves. A couple years later, the company goes bankrupt. I guess what I'm saying is it takes more than a person or two to change a company. And they're doing all the right things, by the way. I have nothing. I'm not short GameStop. I have nothing against it. But it pains me to see the retail trader mostly get caught up in this. And, guy, you know there were people that were selling stock down in 120 that bought it back at 180. No doubt right? You know that there was aftermarket purchases. And that's what I'm saying. What I take away from the documentary is it's not just GameStop. There's many of these that are out there. And the retail investor is moving stocks and having a massive impact. But just stop blaming short sellers for this. Because if you're looking to buy this stock at this valuation, you've got to give me a thesis that you truly believe. And nothing in that report in that 10K gets me that. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what the thesis is, Danny. It's a greater fool's theory that you're going to buy it at you know 100 and somebody next to you is going to buy it for 110 and that game's going to last. And and by the way, you know this, that game worked for a period of time a couple months ago when you saw the stock go from 15 to 400 you know, over the course of a week or so. But that's the thesis for a lot of these people. There are also a lot of people believe that as long as they hold on to their stock, you know, as long as they hold the line, it by definition has to go higher. And that's just not true. That's just flat out patently false. But I do think there are a lot of people believe that. And that's inherently dangerous. The reason that guys like Carter Worth, who I love, my favorite technician by far, I know you're friendly with him. I'm friendly with him. The reason that works is human nature. Mm -hmm. The reason the stock goes to a level and fails or goes to a level and explodes higher, there's a reason. People have a break-even mentality, to your point. If I bought GameStop at 100 bucks and it goes down to 60 I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to sell that until I get my money back. Well, what you're not thinking about is maybe you should be selling that at 60 and buying something else with it from an opportunity cost perspective. And that's why charts work. That's why charts can be self-fulfilling prophecies. Lots of volume at a certain level goes to that level. We call it resistance. goes above that level. We turn it in, into support. We won't spend much more time on that. But to your point, it's just a measurement of behavioral finance is really what it is. And there's another one out there that happened this week, which is ARC Assets Report. Yeah, I, wa- I wanted to talk about that because it's obviously fascinating. Kathy Wood, who's been on you know CNBC a number of times, we'd love to get her on this podcast, I think. I think it would be a great conversation. 
you know, but over the last couple of months, a lot of people look to her as this generation's Warren Buffett in a lot of ways, some of her visionary calls seemingly, and some of the things that she's looking at. And I think you have some thoughts on her ARC ETF, but also in terms of what's going on with Tesla, the EV space. I mean, just a lot to unravel there, Danny. Yeah, but with this, really, I'm not even going to go after Kathy Wood per se or ARC. I'm going to go after, again, behavioral finance here. Mm-hmm. She puts out a report over the weekend saying that Tesla could be worth $3,000. And she irons out how, how she kind of gets there. And there's an insurance unit and she has her analysts put together all this stuff. It made no sense. Like, it just absolutely made no sense. And it was obvious that it was somewhat of a Hail Mary for the stock, which had been hit. And then her book in general, which, you know, and I, and I get it. And I'm not going to say she doesn't believe it. I'm not going to say that anyone can have an opinion. That's fine. But here's what's really interesting. The stock really failed. Yes, it went up 3 or 4%. And then, and then it started to come and it actually went back underneath where it was from the previous close on that Friday night, which I think is always pretty interesting tell. And the reason I mention that is it's not just Tesla, it's other stocks in general. Again, I want to compare this to 2000. This is exactly what happened at the end of it during that bubble. Stocks stopped going up on the same news that they had been going up That's right. previously. And you see that happening. And so to me, that was more of the tell than anything. I do think that the no pun intended, Tesla car is full. I don't think there's, you know, maybe you can get some more here. There's some tidbits that come out here and there. But, and Dan had talked about this previously, but now the real competitive threats are coming, right? And Tesla is now facing Volkswagen, obviously, BMW and others who have come out with competing cars and are now really ramping up and watching the Volkswagen stock, I think up 70 or 80% this year. You know, at this point, we're finally seeing at least a slight closing of the valuation. Yeah, no question. And it's interesting you bring up Volkswagen because prior to GameStop, Volkswagen was GameStop, if you remember, a few years ago. So it's oh, interesting. Yeah, I, remember. That's, I know you do. That's come sort of full cycle. And what I think is also interesting, and I know you probably have some thoughts, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole necessarily, but a lot of times what happens is you know, these ETFs get to a certain level where the ETFs drive the stocks instead of the underlying stocks driving the ETF. And I'm not suggesting it should be one way or the other, but in my mind, the success or failure of the individual names should drive the ETF. And I think what we're seeing, I think, Danny, is the exact opposite. The ETFs have gotten to a point where they're driving the underlying stocks. And I think that could be really, really dangerous. We've talked about that before. It's the retail investor choosing the ETF as a method to invest. That's fine. And then the companies themselves become beholden to that ETF. So to your point, if you, I mean, I don't think Tesla should be in any ESG portfolio, but that's a whole nother episode. But if you have 50 ESG ETFs that launch, not even including ARC as an ETF product, but in general, and they decide to have Tesla and other stocks in there, you're right. It is self-fulfilling that those stocks will move into the ARC specifically on some of those small cap names. We've already talked about that before, but I go back to this. If I'm the CEO of a company and my top 10 shareholders, seven of them are ETFs, so they're basically passive investors Mm -hmm. and not the active mutual fund managers or portfolio managers that you can actually talk to about your business, and you're scared to cut your dividend, but you know that you should, but if you cut your dividend, you're going to get kicked out of that dividend ETF, what do you do? To your point, you start making non-fundamental decisions based upon what your your fear of your short where it's short your price will go short term. That's exactly right by the way. You're 100% right. So many of these companies have become beholden to the ETF as opposed to other things that they should be holding to like maybe the success or failure of their company. It's a crazy thing 
And that's probably another episode for a guest to come in and sort of break this down. But, you know, Warren Buffett, I think, said this years ago, and if I'm incorrect, you're going to at me on Twitter, I'm sure. But I think he was sort of on the fence, if not on the other side of the fence, with ETFs. And I think it's going to come to fruition at some point. I will tell you, Danny, one of my great concerns is we live in the time of the passive investing, meaning money just floats in regardless. And my fear is when passive becomes active, and it's going to happen, it ain't going to be active on the upside. It's going to be active on the downside. And as we've learned the hard way, things go down a lot faster than they go up. Correct. Staircase up, elevator down. That's right. And quickly, you know, the other thing we have to talk about before we go to our guests, and I'm really looking forward to going off the tape with these two guys that you lined up because, you know, I read their bios and they're fascinating. But these stimulus checks coming out, a lot of people saying that it's just going to be thrown right into the stock market. For better or for worse, we're talking about Robinhood that's probably going to file to go public at a certain point. I think that's out there in the news. Who wins to all this? Is it just that easy that these checks are coming in and these checks are going to go right into either cryptocurrencies or NFTs or stocks? No, they're probably going to go into everything, paying down credit cards, going into the stock market. Maybe you're saving it. You're paying off a car. I mean, listen, it's good that they can be used for certain things. But what's not great is, you know, Robinhood putting out that ad a couple of weeks ago upon right. the passage of the $1.9 trillion. Hey, bring your stimmy checks here. And we'll give you X amount of free trades or whatever it's going to be. Like that to me is not great. That to your point, that never really ends well. I know one thing some people are going to spend their money on on stim checks, which is cannabis, which I know we're going to talk about later. But I got to get in the state of New York. Now, they haven't formally passed the law yet in the state Senate, but it should be next week. Uh, state of New York is going to legalize cannabis for adult use. As you guys know, it's already a medical state, but for adult use and it's going to include delivery. It's going to include club-like lounges that don't serve alcohol. Can you imagine in the city going to hang out in one of these lounges like Amsterdam 25 years ago? It'll allow people to cultivate in their home six plants or less, indoor or outdoor, but you can't sell it, but you can use it. One of the best parts is that it's going to do a lot for all the communities which have impacted the most because of drugs. And so great carve out there. And the way they're going to pay for it is a 9% state tax and a 4% local tax on retail sale of cannabis, 40% of it's going to education, 40% of it's going to go to communities that I mentioned that are you know, affected by the war on drugs, and then 20% for drug treatment, education, prevention. So this bill, you know, every time a, a new state, especially like New York, writes a law like this, or provides a law, it always takes the best of everything that's going on in various states, like a pick a little bit of a Colorado, you know, pick a little bit of an Illinois, and learn from everybody else what they're doing. So I'm hopeful this can pass. Cuomo has no leg to stand on, so he's going to just say yes to anything at this point that the state Senate wants, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. So I think this is going to happen. It won't happen till it won't get enacted or till next year when it actually rolls out. But it's a step in the right direction. We're going to be talking to our guests about this. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. I will tell you, and you can believe me, not believe me, but I am not one to puff the magic dragon. Never had, probably never will. But that, hey, I'm not judging here. For a lot of people, I'm sure that's great. But when we come back, and I am so fired up for this, we're going to have our off-the-tape interview with Isaac and Brady. Stay with us, folks. Now it's time to go off the tape with Isaac Boltanski and Brady Cobb. Isaac is the Director of Policy Research for Compass Point Research and Trading, coordinating the firm's Washington policy analysis, focusing in particular on mortgage finance, consumer lending, education services, and tax policy. He joined Compass Point from the TARP Congressional Oversight Panel and previously worked as an analyst at EJF Capital. 
Brady Cobb is the CEO of Bluma Wellness and One Plant Florida, leveraging his legal background to address marijuana policy reform. Prior to founding One Plant, he led market-setting strategic investments in the cannabis space as the CEO of publicly traded Saul Global Investment. He also has a family history with the sector that he'll be sharing with us today. Guys, welcome to On the Tape. We're, first of all, I know you folks can't see it, but Brady looks like he's at the foot of some mountain somewhere. Dude, where are you, man? What is going on with you? I'm in a little place where the women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano and the beer flows like wine. Aspen. Okay, so I'm supposed to know what... Oh, Aspen, Colorado. I mean, do you you obviously set that up. That's beautiful. I love that. This is what happens when you sell your company for over $200 million. You just go out to Aspen. Oh, is That's it? it? Really? Good for you. My man. And Isaac, on the flip side, I mean, you're like in, you're from parts unknown down there in a basement, in a bunker. You look like the guy from Homeland, if I may. It's rainy. It's dark. It's depressing. It's DC. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And it's really great to have you both with us. So, Brady, you have a great backstory. If you could just share it with the folks how you got to where you are right now. I know you're speaking to us from parts unknown or for the folks at home, Aspen, Colorado. Give us the sort of the 45-second story about Brady Cobb. Sure. Yeah, I'm a state school kid, Florida State University. I guess we're a basketball school now, no longer a uh, football school. But lawyer by trade, I'm in recovery, as I often say. I'm a lawyer in recovery. But jumped into the cannabis sector, you could say it's in my blood. From 1977 to 1983, my father was one of the largest cannabis smugglers in the history of the U.S. Justice Department. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not just gloss over that. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty cool that you just sort of whizzed through there, hoping that I wouldn't stop you. I mean, that's a great effing story, dude. Yeah, he was in the suntan oil business down in the Keys, and uh, Cubans were moving a big load down our street, and the, the truck broke down, and uh, they offered him a hundred grand to put it in his barn. He was a redneck from North Florida, so of course he's the only idiot in Key West with a with a barn. And he loaded about forty thousand pounds in there, got paid his hundred grand, and said, "How do we do that again?" And flash forward, and he was indicted in nineteen eighty three for smuggling. He assembled the OJ team before OJ did. Alan Dershowitz, Fred Levin, Johnny Cochran got convicted, got sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. And I guess the gloves fit in that case. The glove did fit. The glove did fit fit in that one. Yeah. Just make, okay. The joint was his and, (laughs) and he did inhale, but it left an impact on my life. It broke my family up. My family got divorced. My mom and I moved back to Fort Lauderdale area, went to school. And in my mind, I got to know him later in life when he got out of jail. And, you know, that was all kind of cut short. When I went to Florida State, he moved back up where he was from and he got bone cancer. So what really propelled me, I was 30 years old when he got bone cancer. My son was about three months old. And I've always wanted to be in cannabis, obviously being in my blood. I'm a cannabis enthusiast. My mom probably doesn't like, you know, I was smoking my first joint at probably 14 years old. I'm sure my mom, if you're listening, I'm sorry. And for me, it was a time that, okay, this, I got to go do this because I watched my father go through bone cancer. And the only thing that gave him relief was rolling joints for him. And it catapulted me to start finding my exit from law. And when the constitutional amendment process started in Florida, I worked for the Senate president in Tallahassee, lobbied up there and ran a government affairs firm up there for years. And that was my time. When that, when that law changed, I made sure I got a license. And he did it his way, running shrimp boats with no nets. He literally had 13 shrimp boats and never caught a fucking shrimp. And I did it by going to law school and working to change the laws. And then I was the chief legal officer of a company, a publicly traded cannabis company called Liberty Health Sciences. Danny knows just got bought by AYR. And then I left there to pursue a passion project. And we, we took over another Florida license with a focus on only the best cannabis. That's the one missing void in, in U.S. cannabis right now. There's Cureleaf. There's all these companies with huge footprints. 
And very few people are focusing on product quality, which ultimately when you see a market get scaled, it matters. So kind of wear two hats. I'm in DC a ton. I've been lobbying with the BGR group, which is Haley Barber's lobby group and started up there in 2016, which I'm sure Isaac can, can attest. But back then, you couldn't get a meeting with people that made coffee if you want to talk to them about cannabis, much less sit down with an actual representative. So it's been a fun fight and we just went under contract. We're closing here in a couple of weeks to sell our Florida operation, One Plant Florida to Cresco Labs for like 220 million bucks. And I'm going to stick around there for a little bit and then we'll see what's next. But an intermediate stop guy, I was a CEO of a publicly traded company that was in cannabis investments company. So we deployed investments throughout the sector, we deployed around $220 million from 18 to the kind of the latter part of 19. I've seen a lot of good ones. I've seen a lot of bad ones and I've been a part of a lot of big deals. So it's an exciting time for us as we're kind of on the precipice of federal legalization. Wish my dad could see it. Absolutely. We're going to get into that. And I think Nick Cage should play your dad in the movie because I guarantee there's a movie coming because it sounds like just a fascinating story. And the backstories to some of this stuff must be just incredible. Isaac, I hope you're listening, brother, because you got a high bar oh. to jump over in terms of that stuff. Give us sort of the 30 second Isaac story if you can. I want to just give my time back to Brady if I can. Is that an option? <laughs> That's a very <laughs> politically thing. That's very good there, Isaac. Come on, Isaac. I'll, I'll defer to the senator. So look, my name's Isaac Boltanski. I'm the policy analyst at Compass Point. We're a small boutique financials-focused investment bank out of D.C. Been here for 10 years. My job is to follow how legislative and regulatory trends impact the companies we follow. Uh, I initially came at this through the cannabis banking lens, which is an acute issue in this whole story. But I think Brady really framed it well. This issue isn't just about those acute matters anymore. It's about more comprehensive reform. We followed on that end. Before that, I was on the Hill. I worked for the TARP Oversight Panel, which if you can imagine, thinking (laughs) back to those halcyon days when $700 billion was a lot. That was the bank bailout back in uh, the great financial crisis. And I had the unique, if not schizophrenic, experience of working on a panel that had Senator Warren at the top and then Congressman Jeb Hensarling as the number two. So we got to see both ends of the ideological spectrum at work. Before that, I worked at a small hedge fund and their AUM has gone up at least 15x since I worked there. So if passes prelude. All of your net worths are going to go up 15x the minute I get off this. I will say one thing you both have in common is passion for what you do, and you're both great at what you do. And Brady, to start with you, and we joke about this, but you really care about quality of the cannabis that you're growing, and you really view it as medicine for the body. And I know you take pride in that. So from I know you guys don't rank number one yet in total sales in Florida, but I'm sure at some point you, you might, certainly with the backing of Cresco, but maybe... Just spend a minute on why that's so important to you. I know you mentioned your father, but it'd be good to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, for me, if I'm a purist and the only way I could build the team of people that were purists to go produce a scalable, high quality product is we all had to be bought in. So we have a mission statement. Our cannabis is grown, not made. And you hear a lot of other CEOs in the sector talking about manufacturing and cultivation facilities and state of the art, da, 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 da. Well, we have state-of-the-art facilities, but we actually believe in every single seed that we plant and every clone that we take and an end product at the consumer. You know, there's a lot of people competing for the Walmart-style business, the high-volume, low-quality, low-margin business. And don't get me wrong, cannabis margins are not anywhere near low yet, but we have products where we're consistently north of 65 70% margins because we focused on product quality and you build a loyalty in consumers because they know I'm going to go to them and I'm going to get the best possible product 
we were the first in the state of Florida to hand trim all our flour, which everyone thought we were nuts from a labor perspective. But by doing that, you can price it accordingly. So in my mind, as you stare and I had a, I've toured, I can't even count how many cannabis facilities I've tours. I've been in facilities. So many of them are soulless facilities where they're just making a widget. At the end of the day, we're making something that people are putting in their bodies. They're using it as an alternative for pharmaceuticals. They're using it as a pharm- an alternative for alcohol. It better be a good product. This has been my entire point, my whole passion project for doing this. So the easy way is large scale, low grade weed. The hard way is scalable premium. And that's where the marriage with Cresco made so much sense because they've been in California, which is the largest cannabis market on planet Earth for the last two years. And they are like a 50 share of the wholesale market out there dialing in their product quality to be able to be on that many shelves. So when Charlie and the boys called about doing a merger, it was based on our kind of alignment on premium product. It was an easy phone call to return. Is this industry going to be retailers, meat, wholesaler type CBG, like Gap stores from the 1980s and Budweiser from before? Where's this going to end up? How people are going to view this sector? Is it on the retail level? In my humble opinion, you need to bet on cultivation. I think these MSOs at some point way down the road are going to, the sum of the parts is going to be worth more multi-state than Multi-state operators for those that are MSO, multi-state operators. Multi-state yeah. operators. So th- I think the sum of the parts of those companies is going to be worth more than the whole. And I say that because there's a lot of really good retailers in America. We've kind of gotten good at it over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. There's a lot of companies that would like to sell higher margin items once the federal law overhang is no longer there. But it's growing cannabis and premium cannabis at scale is not easy delivering it, manufacturing the various different products from oils, tinctures, bombs, all of that is not easy. So that is where the MSOs have an up, in my opinion, have a leg up. But I don't think for a second, I don't know if you saw recently, but a memo came out from the alcohol distribution companies. They're all lobbying Congress for, and, and they're active. They've been active for years. I've run into their lobbyists all the time. I'm sure Isaac has too. They're pushing for a more three-tier distribution system. Just They're waving their hands going, we know how to move product. We know how to put it in warehouses. We have warehouses. We kind of know what we're doing here. So I think you're going to see the companies that have invested in product quality from cultivation standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint, from a logistics standpoint. The companies that are looking down the field, making hires in their C-suite to be able to set up to be a CPG style company that's going to distribute through existing retailers. I think that's what, you know, if you were to ask me what the world looks like in 10 years, this is a product that when you're checking out at Walmart, there's a lockbox by where the cigarettes are and you can buy pre-rolls and vape products. And I think they're going to be distributed, but the same alcohol distributors that have been testing the market in Canada are going to be trying to do it here. And I think you're going to see that retail is where I think it could potentially get hurt in the cannabis sector because there's a lot of really good retailers in the U.S. that would love to sell these high margin products. All right. So Isaac, where are we in this cannabis policy debate? We can talk about whether it's a safe act or the state's act, but let's just keep it simple. Are we going to see something come through this year? I've seen it already hit both parts of Congress. So give us your take on that. Yeah, let me give you the good news. The conversation has improved over the past decade and it's better positioned than it's ever been on Capitol Hill. Furthermore, the steady march of states legalizing this is going to continue. That's the good news. Now, there's a more complicated element, Danny, and it's the reality that we have moved on Capitol Hill from trying to tackle acute policy issues like cannabis banking or the trouble that we have with cannabis research via the FDA. These were standalone efforts in the past. They got some traction. But now we've moved away from these acute issues into more of a comprehensive attempt at reforming the system. That's good. That's good for the long-term prospects of of this industry. 
but it's going to take a little while longer. And so I'm just cautioning in the near term that, look, we're going to have more headlines regarding this cannabis banking bill. You're going to have an effort that comes out from Senators Booker, Wyden, and Schumer that is going to look more like the comprehensive reform. But the reality is you don't have 60 votes for it yet in this Senate. So I think you're going to have time before we see a federal shift. And what I'm telling my clients is bet on folks who have been able to prove themselves and make money in this period of a incongruity between state and federal law. Eventually, we'll get there. And I think what Brady describes 10 years from now makes sense. I'm just not betting on it this Congress. One of the things I couldn't agree with Isaac Moore on is if you're analyzing companies in this sector, remember this. And I think this is important to think about as you guys talk to broader people via CNBC and others is these cannabis companies in the United States are generating positive cash from operations and EBITDA, a lot of them, the, the Crescos, the GTIs, the True Leaves, the Cure Leaves, even amidst these draconian banking laws and these draconian tax laws that are still in place. That is amazing. When and if it happens, and I think I would say we have gone from a if it happens from cannabis reform to a when it's going to happen to a timing standpoint, then those companies bought those balance sheets and, and their P&Ls only start to look better, not worse. So that's the opening statement I'll say, because there's a lot of impatience. Everybody wants it right now in today's world and pass the reform right now. You know, it is going to take a minute. I think I, I firmly believe and I kind of missed I called Safe Banking Act being filed by March 15th in the House. It it got filed on the 18th, so I missed by three days, but it was pretty close. I think you will see, and I do think we are right at that 60 to 62 vote number to get that bill through. You know, I know know, Senator Brown is wanting to attach and have a hearing to talk about social justice. I firmly believe that's political posturing to set up the next one and and set up the more comprehensive bill where they will tackle social justice. But I do think you're going to see Safe sometime late summer, fall, head to head to Biden. Now, the comprehensive reform bill, that is going to be one interesting thing to be a part of and to see. And I, I've gotten invited by Schumer and Booker and Wyden to participate as an industry stakeholder. And I'm kind of going to have to put a Teflon vest on, I guess, because that is going to be a tough room when you're going to try to fix 60 years of bad drug policy in one bill and get enough votes, Republican votes in the Senate to get to 60. So, I do think it's a two-step, but the, the comprehensive reform bill, one of the things you see in unified government, and I'd I love Isaac's take on this, but as I, study, as I studied the various different Congresses, if you look at unified government, it's usually harder to get something done. When you don't have anybody else to shoot at, you start shooting at each other. And in this case, it's a Democratic majority, and they're starting to shoot at each other a little bit. So that is going to be a painstaking process. But the one thing that cannot be overlooked is Majority Leader Schumer, the Majority Leader of the most powerful governmental body on planet Earth, the U.S. Senate, has this as a major priority to get it done. And I do think you'll see some movement, but the devil's going to be in the details of what social justice actually looks like in that second reform bill. Given everything that you said and and Brady just said, when do you see the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ listing these U.S. companies? I I think it's going to take longer. And look, I, I respect what Brady said. Look, Schumer being in, involved is important, but look, Schumer also wanted a $15 minimum wage and $50,000 in student loan cancellation. He didn't get either one of those because counting votes in the U.S. Senate still matters. Again, it's positive, but I struggle with the idea of even banking in the near term, in part because of what Brady mentioned, which is, look, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And just like the GOP had to live through its Tea Party back in 2011, the Democrats are going to live through their own Tea Party 
It's going to be more of an herbal tea party, but you're still going to see that split within their caucus between progressives and moderates. And I truly believe that the progressives are going to say, why in the wide world of sports are we going to allow this banking provision to go through so that folks who talk about revenues and EBITDA can get what they want while they're people of color who are still in prison for cannabis uh, infractions years ago? And that's what I see in this party is that Look, passing $2 trillion in coronavirus relief, that's easy, right? That was right down the middle of the fairway. Everything else gets more complicated because the Democrats are not a united coalition when it comes to every other issue. And I think that we're going to see that divide in the cannabis space in particular. So, Guy, to answer your question, I think it would take time even if the Safe Banking Act became law for the exchanges to come around. And I'm telling you, I'm still not even bullish on safe becoming law. So I think it's going to take time before we get the exchanges comfortable with with companies that actually touch the point. So Isaac, just to go back, I'm sure Brady has some thoughts on this as well. My sense is the lobbyist against this has to be big pharma, unless I'm totally missing something. My sense is- Alcohol too. Alcohol as well. I mean, so I'm sure you have some thoughts. Yeah. So our biggest natural predators are alcohol, tobacco, and pharma. With the current makeup of Congress and and D.C., they've switched to almost a, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. So now they're starting to assess, okay, how long can we stretch this out? And look, I'm merging with an MSO right now. Trust me, I want the moat to be as wide as possible before my natural predators can come in and start doing M&A. Trust me, because we're we're making money right now, and it's only going to get better when these laws pass. I just, based on the direct meetings I've had with both Schumer and the various different leadership in both the House and the Senate, safe's a priority to show they got something done on cannabis because they made a lot of promises. And it's going to, allowing safe to pass is not a nod against social justice. It's the first step, and they're going to do it in the second bill. So Isaac, if safe passes by, let's say, October 1st of 2021, I'm coming to DC, and we're going to have a nice little dinner at Milano, and loser buys. I will happily be wrong on this, but I'm not going to. Uh, so, so that, <laughs> wow. that's taken. Let's Isaac's go. got a set. I love that. By the way, you should go to Philomena, by the way, the best chicken parm I think I've ever had. But that's old school Georgetown shit. So, uh, Isaac, just, you know, pushing back at you real quick, because I, I want to actually ask this question. Fed policy, you're down in D.C., so I have to ask the question. Danny and I get exercised all the time about what we see that's going on and some of the largesse it's led to. Can you just speak really quick about your thoughts about specifically our central bank and some of the bullshit, pardon my French, that's come out of their mouths over the last couple of weeks? So here's how I think about it. And a lot of it's through the banking lens. The Fed had a decision. They could have let this very technical thing called the supplementary leverage ratio relief continue. And that was basically just saying that banks don't have to hold extra capital because they have seen an increase in reserves and they're holding to treasury. But Jay Powell and and the folks at the Fed got a lot of pushback from progressives, Senator Warren and Brown, excuse me, Chair Waters. And in my opinion, they caved to that pressure. And I think that's in part because at the moment, Chairman Powell sees a window to be renominated. And I think for that reason, they chose to bow to the pressure on the political side. In terms of what's happening in D.C. more broadly, Look, we are undertaking incredible social experiments right now. And in effect, we have universal basic income coming out on the fiscal side. And I get why people continue to say, look, we haven't had inflation for decades. We're not going to have inflation going forward. My pushback on that is we've never tried what we're trying right now on the fiscal side. And that fiscal support is just going to continue, right? 
like I, I can't highlight this enough. The extra unemployment insurance that is set to expire in September, I bet you my bottom dollar that that's continued beyond. Not to mention this next package on infrastructure is going to be about a lot more than infrastructure. And so I think that we have to reassess all of our assumptions regarding inflation in particular, because we really haven't tried this on the fiscal side. Now, there's some good that's going to come from that guy, because the reality is before the pandemic, 40% of Americans lived in a permanent recession, right? And a lot of these funds have gone to help them. But we've got to think about the downstream impacts and the broader economic implications as well. So there's some good, and we talk about the positive it's had for consumer credit and the support it's had for certain families with the social safety net. But I worry that we're relying on this outdated view of inflation that really is predicated on a different type of fiscal construct. Well, the mandate changed, right? So the Fed just changes the rules as they go along to justify what they're doing. And you commented the SLR. That was the first negative policy, if you want to even call it that, to the banks in I don't even know how many years. I mean, since Dodd-Frank, basically, because ever since then, there's been a little bit of relinquishment, obviously, on them. And some were called for, but you know, some were not. So it's the first time. But Isaac, and this goes back to Brady, and this goes back to why we need cannabis reform. And it goes back to the federal debt, state and local debt, and how cannabis is such a positive for the economy, especially on the end of the spectrum, lower end income spectrum. And so it has a positive impact. So when does the debt matter, Isaac? When are people going to care that we're approaching 30 trillion? First off, the only deficit hawks in DC are the parties that are in the minority, right? That's the reality. When you're in the majority, deficits don't matter. And so I struggle to see when it's going to actually matter for folks in DC. At the moment, I can tell you that at least with this administration, and I believe the majority of the Democratic Party, there is going to be a focus for the next two years and possibly four years, depending upon what happens in the midterms, on trying to close that gap between wealth and work. And they're going to use whatever tools they can. And that includes more expansive fiscal policy. And one thing I want to highlight, Danny, is this was something that doesn't get enough reporting and attention. But we have seen now over the past few weeks, as members of Congress have slowly decided to move away from the ban on earmarks. That's so vitally important, Danny. We all remember back in the day, the bridge to nowhere. And you can't go anywhere in the state of West Virginia without seeing Robert C. Byrd's name, right? Because he was the appropriations chair and he funneled money back home. They got rid of earmarks. Past few weeks, they've brought them back, which means that members of both parties can start to say, hey, I'd really like this project of mine to be funded. That's meaningful because that just means that the price tag for things go up and up and up. Brady, let me get to you because you said you went to Florida State. I mean, Brady Cobb, you should have played effing linebacker at Florida State with that name. That's a badass name, just as an FYI. I mean, I could have really done damage with that. I think sometimes your <laughs> name dictates what you're going to do in life. I know that sounds crazy, but, I, but in a lot of ways, it really lends itself to what you're going to be. My name is Guy, so I have no effing idea what that means. But in terms of the things we're just talking about, and I believe this with the entirety of my heart, I think our Fed policy is the single biggest factor that we have this huge wealth inequality in this country. And I ask you this because you've been on both sides now of this equation, Robert. You've been on the one side many years ago, and now you're on the other side. What are your thoughts on that? Because you would have a fascinating perspective, maybe more so than than anybody I've talked to in quite some time. Look, I've been blessed, and my mom struggled when she was a single mom. So I've seen both sides of it, to your point. And I've seen it 
you know, in the cannabis sector, it's absolutely mind boggling to me that someone could be sitting in prison for cannabis and assuming the prison has a computer, they could jump on weed maps and see the closest legal dispensary. I mean, it's completely asinine. And when you look at and think about if you're a U.S. company employing U.S. people, make no mistake about it. Cannabis in the U.S. is a U.S. growth story. It is a potential for a we're, we built and made and grown in America story, but we have to bank in Canada and list publicly on that Canadian Securities Exchange, which is an interesting prospect all by itself. If you're a Canadian company only employing Canadians, you have the opportunity to list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ and bank at Wells Fargo. So I'm not complaining because there's people rotting in prison. There's people that sold cannabis on street corners to try to pay the bills and feed their families and they're rotting in prison. And now there's dispensaries and here I am sitting in Aspen. So I'm one of the few guys that shows up to DC with a suit and tie on and they start complaining about social justice and look at me like a Wall Street robber baron. And I go, well, my father went to prison for it. So I've got a little bit of a different perspective. I may have a suit on right now, which I can't stand wearing fucking suits anymore now that I don't have to as a lawyer. But when I do suit up, or not up, as you said, I've not heard that. I like that. I still have the battle scars that, yeah, but it affected my family. And at some point in time, there needs to be policy reform. But what I worry about, and you saw a lot of the social justice and the fixing that income inequality gap in cannabis is, oh, we'll just do social justice licenses where there has to be 51 minority, 49, you know, for the rest of it. Those have not worked almost in any other industry. And even the initial rollouts in states like California, all there is ends up being is litigation as the minority owners, the 49% owners try to take over the business. So the first thing that I see from a social justice standpoint is some type of expungement program where you do a fiscal allocation. We've talked to uh, Schumer's team about this. You do a fiscal allocation to, or appropriation to the states that they have to use the money for this to fund their public defenders to offer a free expungement program. Call it Operation Clean Slate. But that at least you get the scarlet letter. We have so many people that want to come work for us in cannabis. And they, we can't hire them because they had a possession charge 15 years ago. That's got to stop. People that are rotten in jail, they got to get out of jail for cannabis. So, you know, the Fed policy on it, people want minorities in the business. We, we want social justice reform. I couldn't agree with, with Senator Brown anymore. Well, then you got to open up banking because right now you can't open. If a minority want to start a cannabis company, they can't go open a bank account. There's only one bank in the state of Florida. 21 million people, one of the, probably the second or third largest cannabis market in the U.S., there is one bank that has one branch in the middle of the freaking state. That's the only bank that will take cannabis money. So if a minority wants to go open a business, they who they open a bank account with, with unless the banking laws get changed. So it's part of that stepping stone process that we've been educating people on. Doing safe without social justice isn't an indictment of social justice. It's a stepping stone in the right direction. And then to allow broader reform so we can start fixing some of these income inequality. And cannabis could be a made in America story in 21 and beyond. It's also a great tax revenue. Look at what Colorado did. Is, is Colorado's nine, I'm here now, 9 million people. They went from a $3 billion deficit to a $2 billion surplus in four years on the backs of cannabis. That, that's, that's real money. They're building schools and parks out here with it. We're, we're looking at the New York bill today, and, and there's some concern from folks I talk to who say that the tax rate is too high, right? And that you're not going to have enough migration from the underground economy to buying in the store. So is there an equilibrium when you think about the tax rates and the taxation structure of this stuff where you go from workable to unworkable? I don't really think so. Uh, to me, you know, you don't want to you don't want a ridiculous tax, but look at the state of Illinois. I think the state of Illinois has a recreational tax at like 30%. And looking at the adoption from black market to legal market, 
the main hindrance for people coming over is they don't understand what the process is. But once there's actually access to legal cannabis, I'm going to speak solely about my wife here. She wasn't really interested in cannabis, even though I was well down the road. She used to always think we had dead skunks in the garage. And I had to tell her that was just me. She is now a medical card holder because she feels like she's cloaked in legality now. And you give someone the ability to be able to access this and being cloaked in a state law card or being able to walk into an adult use cannabis facility in New York, for example, or New York City, you're going to get a lot of new people that have never thought about doing it before because they don't want to do a deal in a Starbucks parking lot with some guy they've never met. So that's where the tax rate, I think, you know, you look at what Illinois done, it's exploded, even with a 30% rec tax. California is about the same. So this notion that the tax is going to be too high, look, I hear people complain about safe banking. It doesn't do enough. Now they're complaining about New York. The tax rate is too high. It's like the porridge is too cold or too hot. Like we're, we're getting cannabis legalized here, everybody. Be happy. Would you rather do a deal on a street corner? Would you rather walk into a nice dispensary, have a bud tender tell you what to buy? And yeah, you're going to pay a little extra in tax. I don't see it as a big issue. The bigger thing for me strategically is once the government gets used to tax revenue, it's very hard for them to go away from it from an adoption standpoint and a legalization standpoint. So for me, tax it. I was in a meeting in Mitch McConnell's office with a bunch of other people, and I raised my hand in the very beginning and said, I just want everyone in the room to know I'm the only guy walking through D.C. right now with a lobbyist, paying a lot of money to this lobbyist so that I can be taxed and regulated. Everybody else that comes in your office is trying to get out of some type of tax or some type of regulation. I'm the only asshole begging to be taxed and regulated. Do you understand that? And I actually got a few chuckles, even out of McConnell, who can barely smile. It's amazing, right? And that's the second time in two weeks I've heard bud tender. So it means it must be a real thing because I thought Danny was thing. bullshitting me last week. So <laughs> Isaac, I mentioned Brady Cobb should be a linebacker at Florida State. Isaac Boltanski should be the goaltender for the Charlestown Chiefs with Paul Newman playing center. And that's just, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I mean, that's just what comes into my crazy mind. But I want to ask you a question. We all know what's going on in Washington if you watch the news. What haven't we heard about that's going on there that you think is really important? I think there are two things. Number one is everyone's taking a victory lap in the Democratic Party about the coronavirus package, and rightfully so. Two trillion is a lot of money. But I don't think there's enough attention being paid to how difficult the next package is going to be. It's going to take months. It's going to take at least one shot on goal to make it bipartisan, which won't work. And I think we'll have to wait until probably September, which is also the same time that you have a bunch of other bills expiring and the dreaded debt ceiling returns. So I think that infrastructure slash tax package is going to take a while. The second item is something I think we should be happy about, which is there's going to be a brief moment of bipartisanship where we see our lawmakers get together and put forward a package that will become law to try to help America vis-a-vis uh, -vis its competitiveness with China. And I think really trying to focus on issues with everything from semiconductors to trade is something we should be happy to see from our lawmakers in any form. And that's something that's going to happen over the next few weeks that I think is going to be an area of focus and a brief respite from the partisanship that otherwise dominates the, the capital. I totally forgot about the debt ceiling coming again. That's going to be a real issue. I just want to ask you guys one question just to clarify about the exchanges listing cannabis. You don't need policy for the exchanges to decide to list cannabis. They just need the cover from the banking industry from a clearing perspective. Is that correct, Isaac? Yeah, from the meetings that we've had, they're looking for cover. I think it truly, Danny has said it right. And if an exchange could list, if New York, if the NYSE, for example, could list these companies instead of the CSE, they'd love to. I mean, it's a great story. 
the Wall Street law firms would absolutely love to have to do all the prospectus drafting and come up with what will probably be about two encyclopedias full of disclosures on the front of everything. But be that as it may, the current language in both the FinCEN guidance as well as all the AML guidance and, and everything else that's out there and the huge federal law overhang of this being a Schedule One drug, it's a bridge too far. So you look at a Safe Banking Act getting passed and that regulatory process is where I think the real work's got to be done to see as much as we can get out of that regulatory process. I think with the right disclosures and the ability to get us on their exchanges and, and trading there and for fees, they're going to want to do it. I agree with Isaac. The devil's going to be in the details of what actually gets passed and the timing of it. But there's no doubt they want to list these companies. Brady and I are in complete agreement, but absolutely everyone around this and in this ecosystem wants them listed and wants them listed here. I think my problem is the Safe Banking Act, as written right now, does not explicitly address that. I think that Brady's right, though. It would slowly allow the exchanges to go from dipping their toes in the water to maybe putting a full leg in. If you really want the exchanges to get going, though, we need something closer to either the States Act or the MORE Act, or you need the administrative descheduling to happen before the exchanges really jump in. So, Brady, I hear Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think, you know, power forward for the Knicks, man. That's a badass name. And I mentioned that because you mentioned Scarlet Letter, and I think of Hester Prynne. And in a lot of ways, I'm being respectful, but you, you grew up sort of like a Hester Prynne in a lot of ways. And I read an article, I think, in Forbes over the summer about you, and they asked you, well, you know, how hard was it to get mentors? Was there a stigma attached? I mean, these are all things that made you who you are. I think it's fascinating. I think the audience would love to hear about it. I appreciate that. And it's a tough road. I mean, it's hard enough leaving leaving a law firm and a pretty secure deal, leaving jumping into something that's federally illegal, having to do the dance in Canada with the cast of characters that's up in Canada, shorts and boogeymen and you know, very interesting folks that can't pronounce the word about. They say a boot for some reason, which still drives me insane. Going all the way to a public company CEO, getting shorted very publicly by the Hindenburg Group. I saw a stock go from three bucks to 49 cents in like my fourth week there. It was like, okay, here's a crash course on how to get around a short. All the way through the cannabis sector, there's not a lot of people you can call. I liken it to life on the frontier. When people were heading out west on the Oregon Trail and the wagon broke, there's no one to call. You kind of had to fix the fucking wagon or you're going to die. That was largely building out the cannabis business. And we had the unfortunate luck of doing most of our CapEx during the market being completely and totally off a cliff. Actually, Danny and I were out in California at a Half Moon Bay at a Canaccord conference right before everything went to hell in a handbasket. And we had to finish building a $14 million cultivation facility with the markets being completely off a cliff. So I was lucky enough to be able to call on some guys that were really big mentors to me. Danny, one time when I was crying in my beer about how everything was going to end, Danny was gave me the advice, you know, tough times don't last, tough people do. And it's still something I think about all the time because in cannabis, if there's one or two days of good things happening in a row and you start feeling like, hey, I'm doing great in our business, we call it the fuckery. The fuckery shows up on day three and it shows up in a big way. Whether that's getting your payroll company calling you saying we're not going to run payroll for you anymore, even though we would disclose we were a cannabis company. With 260 employees trying to drive checks around the state, that's an interesting thing to do. So it's a fight. My, you know, my own family, my mom was very upset when I jumped in as a CEO, was out there very publicly talking about it. But the reason I've always talked about it so publicly in my own use of cannabis and my own story is it destigmatizes it. This is a plant. I've taken my kids to the cultivation facility so that they can see what daddy built and where, where dad works and can meet the growers and learn the science. And it, it truly is something that it's really fun to be on the front end of. I take a lot of shit. I get trolled a lot, but it's all worth it because 
every person that I can see, friends of our family that never touched it are reaching out going, hey, I'm, my uncle's battling cancer. Can you help me? Can you help him get a card? Can you help him out? Or, hey, my sister's going through something. Or, hey, I want to try it because I'm sick of using Xanax and wine to go to bed after a long day. Those, that's what makes it worth it because every single person, and what's amazing in the legislature, even in DC, people that you talk to, when you used to go meet with these members, they knew nothing about cannabis. They thought it was hippies out in California growing in, in the woods and packing it up and driving it down to Mexico. And you explain to them when they start to learn and see that there's 270 people employed in Cresco's case, there's 3000 employees that rely on this to feed their families and they understand the science. And then someone in their family starts using it because of cancer or something else. That's an amazing moment because when we started in DC, no one gave a shit. They didn't, no one even knew what it was except for, you know, the representatives from Oregon or the senators from California. Now you go into Republican offices and people are educated. They're asking questions. When states like Florida, states like Ohio, states like Pennsylvania, states like Michigan, now New York, these big states and federal elections start going legal cannabis, they couldn't ignore it anymore. It wasn't just the West Coast, stick them out in the West Coast and hope it never comes East. It's East. And I think it's a, it's really been one of the coolest things in my life to be a part of is to be a part of that transformation of this policy and, and, and destigmatizing it. Isaac, I got one other thing to ask you, and this goes back also. Brady can comment on it and then we can wrap this. But so with the administration that's in place now, whether or not we get the SAFE Act or the States Act or the MORE Act coming in the next few months, there's obviously been a sea, sea change regardless. And the reason I say that is when Brady announced his deal with Cresco, right before that, there was another multi-hundred million dollar deal. This was a $200 million deal. Two years ago, one of the things that really stymied kind of the growth, or if you want to say the stock prices of the industry, was the DOJ and the FTC and the HSR, Hart Scott Redino for those people out there, being invoked for anything over, I think, $95 million on any M&A in any sector. It comes in play. That hasn't happened. These deals have gotten approved. So there's obviously a feeling, liberating feeling here of, you know, of change. And so Without the enforcement, the Bradys of the world and those type of companies can move forward without fear. Correct? Do you agree? Or because do you expect to see any type of enforcement? Yeah. So, so two things. I think first and, and foremost, and my takeaway from this conversation is the fact that that Brady and I are only disagreeing about timing, not substance. I think tells you how far this conversation has come over the past twenty years. Right? We're literally just de- disagreeing about months and, and a few years on, on the margins, not the substance. This is happening, and the understanding on Capitol Hill reflects that. So that's point number one. Point number two is we're going to have a much better regulatory climate for the industry. It's going to start at DOJ, which, which, look, it didn't exactly shift there, despite some fears around then Attorney General Sessions, but we're going to get more clarity from this DOJ. We're going to have another round of a cold memo type of, of uh, document. And I think the FTC isn't going to care about this. The people that are at the FTC, as evidenced by their most recent nominee, they're going after big tech. They don't care about, about the cannabis industry. They care about Amazon. Got it. Well, guys, listen, on October 1st, regardless, dinner is my treat. Whatever city we pick, if Brady's back from his trip around the world at that point, we'll <laughs> certainly find a place. But I, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, coming on. Brady Cobb, Isaac Boltanski, um, you know, guy, I'll turn it over to you to wrap this thing. But guys, it's been a true pleasure having you on and we want you guys back on again. Yeah, fellas, sure. that was awesome. You guys definitely got to come back. We could have done this for another hour of time permitted, but we thank you both for your time. This has been fascinating. I learned a lot and 
I think they're great stories. And Brady, I'm definitely looking forward to the movie. And Isaac, good luck in net tonight against the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> we'll see you guys again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you once again to Isaac and Brady. Listen, if you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.